welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry and social justice. Hello, this is James and welcome to episode 37 of the Madden America podcast. This week, I'm delighted to have been able to chat with Dr. Russell Razak. Dr. Razak currently works as a consultant psychiatrist and associate medical director in East London and, together with colleagues, is leading a pioneering multi-centre open dialogue pilot in the UK National Health Service. In 2014, he released his book Breaking Down is Waking Up, in which he explores alternative views of mental distress, their relationship to consciousness and comparisons to forms of spiritual awakening. In this interview, we discuss the relationships between mindfulness, acceptance and commitment therapy, and how the UK NHS is approaching the world's first randomized controlled trial of open dialogue interventions for people struggling with emotional or psychological distress. Dr. Razak, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today for the Madden America podcast. To begin, I wanted to ask a little about you and what led you towards psychiatry as a specialism. Uh, yeah, hi, James. Uh, thanks for inviting me on. Uh, I guess what led me to psychiatry, I mean, it, it, my, my dad is a psychiatrist, actually. So he's been in this business for many years. Um, and I, I went to medical school with some thoughts around going into psychiatry. My dad didn't encourage me, actually. Um, he suggested that I do, uh, the way he put it, is something more useful. Um, and so he's, he's always had um, a bit of a, uh, I suppose, should we say... Uh, unconventional um, take to his own job and profession. He, he came from uh, Bangladesh, won a scholarship to come to the UK and uh, and become a psychiatrist. Uh, but he's always looked at it from a little bit of an outsider's perspective. And so when I, uh, I qualified, I found that sort of uh, psychology and mental health were the things that interested me most in medical school. So I qualified and, um, you know, trained up in the standard way. And... Um, I guess things started to really change for me when I uh, began to practice mindfulness. Um, and I did that many years before it became a big thing in the NHS and in the, the mental health world. So we're talking about nearly 20 years ago now where I started um, to go to mindfulness retreats and have my own regular practice. Uh, and then I started to teach it uh, a number of years after that. And there just felt a real uh, incongruence, a bit of a divergence between the kind of overarching kind of philosophy in psychiatry which and mental health generally which is very much about trying to help people remove their pain and uh, reflexively uh, do whatever you can often involving medication to take people out of it when in my own personal development I was learning to sit with it uh, and learning about the value of it and so I started to believe that we're, there's something that we were doing that needed to change in a quite a fundamental way and so I, I started to look around and, um, yeah, discovered open dialogue really as one way that was very much about being present with people's distress rather than, than, than doing something to reflexively remove it. And, and at the time, it was just knowing something that there was a different way of doing things uh, without having any idea how to make it happen. Mm. And I spent many years kind of uh, quite, um, I wouldn't say distraught, but, you know, sort of... Um, um, I guess in the some angst that uh, there is a there is a good way to do this and and yet we're not doing it. So just sitting with that for for a number of years, really. Thank you. And we'll come on to talk a little about mindfulness and open dialogue. But 
First, in reading your book, Breaking Down is Waking Up, you write about some of the novel therapeutic approaches that interested you, and in particular, acceptance and commitment therapy, I believe originally pioneered by Professor Stephen Hayes. Could you help me understand a little more about ACT and how it can be used to help someone who might be struggling? Yeah, so I guess part of this journey in which I I myself was learning how to be present with my distress and uh, uh, and just be aware of what's happening inside rather than just trying to get myself away from it. I did go on a bit of a journey of looking at different sort of therapeutic modalities and uh, I mentioned open dialogue in terms of something that I finally got to but along the way there's lots of lots of fascinating uh, things that I found uh, you know were really uh, kind of in alignment with that sort of philosophy and that I've thought was very powerful and ACT was one of the first ones that I came to uh, in that journey and um, yeah acceptance of commitment therapy uh, Steve is a brilliant guy and there's lots of brilliant people involved with it and it's very much about uh, I mean they're they're very clever these Americans their use of the English language is brilliant and he's kind of used metaphors they've used a number of metaphors to help you um, to basically kind of be mindful with the difficult experiences you might be having. Um, but rather than using the sometimes, you know, um, fairly austere language of mindfulness itself, they can use some very colorful metaphors. They do things called cognitive diffusions and, uh, and things like this in which, you know, you're talking about um, experiencing all of your different uh, troubles uh, that you might be having in your mind right now as clouds passing through and seeing yourself as the sky that contains all of these clouds. So they're just very clever ways in which you can be mindfully present with the difficulties that you're experiencing now. And they came up with a series of novel sort of techniques, if you like, that, that they use in the therapeutic process to help people to really um, not avoid, but just be open to what they're experiencing as much as possible. And that they kind of define something called experiential avoidance, which is, you know, not having the bad experience, but actually trying to avoid the bad experience, which paradoxically in the mental world, uh, in the emotional world, uh, exacerbates it. Um, so it's all about how to avoid avoidance, if you like. So it, it, it's very clever. They use beautiful language um, as a therapeutic technique in therapy itself. I've, I think that it's, uh, it, it has a, 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 you know, a great deal of merit. And... Um, it also talks very much about while being present with all of these different colors and dimensions of yourself, uh, really being true to what your values are. So um, starting to find ways to progress towards what you really want and what's really important to you in your life. So there's some wonderful things about ACT, and I spent many years attending conferences and workshops learning about it, um, uh, utilizing it. I still do um, utilize aspects of it. The beautiful thing about ACT is that it's very open in terms of you can use it whatever way you want, whatever way it works and helps for your practice, then then use that. So yeah, yeah, I, I, it's immensely valuable. And there are it, it, going to their conferences is, is more like a sort of rock concert type of experience, because they have uh, yeah they have some extremely excited <laughs> um, clinicians who are really raving about uh, what they're doing, uh, which is a good thing to see. I mean, you know, that kind of enthusiasm should not be discouraged in professional circles because. Um, I mean, it's good to be excited about what we're doing. And, and what, what they taught me very much was, was how working in this way that's connected to deeper wisdoms, really, is something that people really can get excited about. And uh, I've, I've seen that now in a, a number of different um, circles. 
Absolutely. And you also talk about being involved in open dialogue, and you mentioned it in your introduction there. I think I'm right in saying that as an intervention, open dialogue is gaining more mainstream acceptance recently. And I understand that you're leading a trial within the UK NHS. So I wondered if you could tell us a bit more about the trial, and perhaps how some of the principles of ACT might lend themselves to open dialogue approaches. Yeah, sure. Uh, it's interesting that you spot the connection there. Um, a few people do, not not everybody. But um, yeah, I've been kind of one of the main coordinators of this the research in the NHS around open dialogue. And, and it, it, as I say, when I first learnt about it many years ago, I, I actually became fairly sad and a little bit despondent because it seemed to me that this is how a mental health system should be organised. However, it's so far away from how we are organised in the NHS and how we do provide our service. And I just couldn't see any possible way in which this could happen. So I sat with a long period of time with this um, real kind of disillusionment that uh, there is a way actually of doing this right. And and the reason why I thought there was a way of doing it right is because it takes off where ACT stops. Hmm. And I've said this, this, this so I, you know, I've had lots of dialogues with Stephen Hayes, this guy I have a lot of respect for, and, um, you know, spent some time with in the past. And, uh, and I did say this to Stephen, you see, to really change the system, it's important to have a system-wide approach and not just an intervention or a technique that you can use because the truth is that if the system is going in one direction, then you can put in techniques into that stream, but it won't change the stream, the direction of the stream. So open dialogue felt like a whole system-wide approach to this kind of philosophy. And what I mean by this kind of philosophy is generally one in which we aren't going in there as professionals to make an intervention to help you get out of what you're experiencing right now. Now, of course, some of that is, is, can be useful. You know, when things are too extreme, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not uh, kind of automatically anti-medication or anti-hospitalization. These things may be necessary for some people at some time, but it certainly shouldn't be all we're doing with people. You know, it shouldn't be the, and it certainly shouldn't be the center of what we're doing with people. You know, it should be one of many possibilities that we have, but the main thrust should really be about professionals being present with people's distress, learning how to really connect to that, being open to it, and being guided by them. That's what person-centered care is all about in terms of what will, you know, what to do next, um, and being open to the possibility of going where they are, you know, and being present with the distress they're experiencing um, and going on a journey with them. And, you know, us all knowing that there is something quite healing in being present with that. Now, that's what both ACT and Open Dialogue are about. But Open Dialogue says, say, does it in a systemic way. So it talks about how the whole system needs to uh, be organized to deliver that. So, for example, one of the core principles involves continuity of care. So the same professionals who are involved in those meetings at crisis can then stay involved through the whole care pathway. Now, that's very different to what we have in the UK and most countries where people will go from team to team, professional to professional. Well, if we're saying that relationships are fundamental to care, then how have we created a system that's like a conveyor belt, you know, where you're going from one you know, kind of section to another and wholly different personnel involved? So you have to change the way that the system works to, in order to encourage relationships uh, to form. Secondly, you have to work with um, the, the social network rather than just the individual because the experience is being had by many people and so it's important for the professionals to be able to sit with them. You have to train staff to work systemically, to work mindfully, and that mindful aspect is something I've very much brought uh, into open dialogue. I've written papers about it and uh, I'm running a training 
uh, in open dialogue for the NHS that has a significant mindfulness component. So, you know, you have to do all of those things. And, and it's not just about, therefore, learning one technique or doing one particular um, sort of clever thing, but it's about reorganizing the whole system, which is what open dialogue is. And that's why it takes it to the next level, which is why it excited me, but, but it really frustrated me at the same time because I couldn't see how it could happen. And then in about 2015, I got into a position of management in the NHS, so I became an associate medical director in my trust and realized by sort of sitting on trust boards and things like this that actually the system itself is broken. And the whole system itself, um, it's not just about it has failing in patient care, it's actually also about financially and organizationally, it doesn't work either. There's a big indoor with more and more people coming to services and a very small outdoor and less and less budget. So it's all, it's all sort of ballooning. So I was able to make an argument to my trust and a number of trusts around the country and say, look, why don't we do something radically different in one corner of your organization? Just one small strip that might treat, you know, a few hundred people. And let's see if that has the kind of outcomes that they've shown in Finland. And let's see if we can do a proper trial around this. Um, and that argument was sufficient to get a number of trusts, seven or eight around the country on board, uh, we then set up the first open dialogue training in the UK and certainly the first in the NHS in 2015 and trained teams from a, a variety of trusts. Uh, since then, we've run that course every year. It's now a university course with London South Bank University and we have Yako um, from Finland and me and some of the original Finnish practitioners as well as Mary Olsen from the States and others coming to teach um, our cohorts here in the NHS. We've taught several hundred so far. It's now an international course and we have people from all over the world, from us, uh, you know, Canada, Israel, uh, France, uh, Germany, a lot of people from the Netherlands coming to our course now. But the core of the course is to teach the UK teams uh, in order to start getting a proper trial together. Um, of course, I talked about a trial to these organizations and managed to persuade them to train their staff on that basis, but we didn't actually have a trial um, going on. So I had to kind of cultivate a collection of academics and eventually managed to get about five or six professors from four universities, UCL, King's, Middlesex and uh, Birmingham on board. Um, and we put in together an application to the National Institute of Health Research for a two and a half million uh, pound grant to do a national randomized control trial of open dialogue uh, in seven centers across the country. And we won the grant. Um, and that actually started uh, the money started to come through, and the first phase started last year in about September, October last year. That was a development phase. Uh, we haven't started the formal evaluation yet. And as I speak, literally the formal evaluation is starting, um, well, the, for the formal team launch is starting this week. That's, that's one of the first teams, my own team. A team in Kent also launched about a year ago. And, yeah, we're starting the pilot evaluation phase now, which will last till about autumn of this year and if that all works out then we go on to the main trial which starts around autumn this year the, the teams across the country there's about seven of them in total uh, will hit the ground around autumn winter time this year and then they'll be evaluated for three years after that and it's cluster randomized trial so there, there's a kind of uh, randomly allocated postcodes that will have open dialogue compared to randomly allocated postcodes that have treatment as usual mm. and we'll follow the um, uh, the progress of the people recruited to both groups over three years. And the argument that people make against open dialogue is that, yes, they had some great results over there in Finland, that little part of the world. However, none of it was randomized. Mm. Um, so we don't know if it was something in the water or something about their culture or something that was very different about how they tend to work in Tornio. So we don't know if this is actually 
open dialogue that did it, and we don't really know much about, uh, about the real evidence base for this. Is, is, does it really? Uh, does it really happen? So for that reason, that's why I went on this big journey. Found that um, trusts are open to training people. They actually uh, probably spent over a million pound on different trusts across the country in training people. That training is now ongoing, and we're still having people across the world now on that training. But we also raised, you know, that significant money from the main research institute of the NHS for us to really evaluate it properly now. And this will give us the final answer once and for all. It's the biggest ever trial in open dialogue. We do have people from all over the world, academics now, uh, linking in with it so that um, from Australia, Japan, um, all over the world, we've got teams now that are also going to be linking in with our, our trial. They're not a formal part of it, but they want to be using the similar data sets so that they can add to the evidence base. My passion is all about building that mountain of evidence base so that we can ultimately answer any of the cynics and say, actually, this definitively produces better outcomes than any other way of working. And once we can say that, hopefully, then it will be a game changer. NHS England, which is the kind of governing body of the NHS in the UK, are very much excited by this, and they're waiting for our results, uh, as are a number of other professional bodies, like the Royal College of Psychiatrists and others. There's a lot of people waiting to see if this is really going to work. And um, I'm focused on trying to make that happen. Um, we'll see. And I can't predict the outcome. Um, but if, if we get even a fraction of the outcomes they had in Tornio, then I think it is a game changer in how mental health services organised. Excellent. Well, I'm thrilled to hear that open dialogue is being accepted in mainstream settings and trialled in a way where we can compare its results to standard approaches like CBT or medication. And Russell, I wanted to ask what the reaction of your colleagues has been to the trial, because I know there's a great deal of support for open dialogue, but also I've seen some be quite critical of it. And I got the sense that some of that critical response was because open dialogue does perhaps threaten the standard model of psychiatry because it is much less about brain disorders, diagnosis and medication. So I just wondered what your colleagues' reaction had been. Yeah, well, I think there's two reasons why it threatens people. And I think we have to be frank about the fact that it does threaten some people sometimes. But I, I see a way through that personally. But there's two reasons it threatens me. One thing to say before that, however, is that it's it's fundamentally a need-adapted approach. So and open dialogue isn't fundamentally anti-anything. You know, It's about putting the family and the person having the experience first. So it's their choice as to which way this goes. So it may involve uh, any types of psychology. It may involve medication. It may involve all of those things. Where medication is concerned, it ends up using it a lot less because people are using their own agency to make these decisions rather than being told this is what you should do. But it's not per se anti of those things. It's very much about creating agency for people so they can make their own choices. Now, the reason I think that it, it might threaten people nevertheless is that, um, first of all, it is about changing the power dynamic that exists in our systems. So very much in our training, we help people develop a consciousness around their own power. We're helping professionals understand that. And as a result, really learn how we try to create an environment in which the power shifts so that it's less hierarchical and therefore the people uh, having the experience are the ones that are calling the shots and particularly helping to define the experience and understanding in their terms. Um, now, that might be a bit challenging for professionals to think, oh, we can't define it in the way that we always have. Well, if you think about it, if our goal is to help liberate people, help them to get on with their lives and not be dependent on services, then surely we need to be giving them a sense of control and agency from the beginning. Mm. The more of a dependence we create, that we're the ones who define the experience, we're the ones who tell you what it means and what it looks like and what, what will happen with it, then it's not rocket science. They're going to stay dependent on you for the rest of their lives, which is what happens. 
So it's very much about helping people to find their own stories. And that may be a bit of a challenge to those people who are wedded to their own perspective, uh, their own way of understanding mental distress, whether that's biological or or CBT or whatever. Um, So, yes, professions are challenged sometimes in the training. However, fundamentally, we all came into this business because we wanted to help people. And, you know, we can really appeal to people on that basis. And we have seen some really beautiful transformations in people on our training and uh, and yeah that's something that i really believe can happen across the board and that, that that's a the self-work the the, the changing the way that uh, you relate to yourself never mind your work and things is fundamental to the training as i said mindfulness is key to the training so we can be present with all of our urges all of our desires to define something to step in with an answer and be present with them without reacting to them uh, and try to create space where the family can start to, uh, or the friends and the person themselves can try and find a way to understand what's really happening here uh, in their own language, in their own sort of story, fitting in with their own context. Now, the other reason why it might be challenging is is a generic thing with any new uh, way of doing things, which is that, you know, if you come along to people who've been in the business for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years and say there might be a better way of doing things that might have a lot better outcomes, that's per se, threatening to a lot of people. It's automatically threatening because it, the, the implication of that is you mean I haven't been doing the best I could? You mean there's better ways to do things than that I did? And whatever you're talking about, whether it's open dialogue or act or a can of beans, whatever you're talking about, it's going to be scary when you say that to anybody. You know? uh, and they're going to feel threatened by that. And that does happen. However, it's an inevitable product of change. You know? um, any change will create you know, sort of some conflict because people always like to do things how they've done it and also... They don't like to be told that there's a different way. Now, at the moment, we have to be tentative about all these things because we don't have the kind of evidence base that people will universally accept. And that's something that we have to accept, which is why we have to go out there and get it. Um, and that's what we're doing now. But yeah, you know, it does create some of these resistances. However, that has not been my general experience. I mean, yes, on the individual level in the training, people have a journey to go through, which is a beautiful journey because at the end of it, almost universally, you'll see people who are so wedded to this way of working that it, and it's changed their lives. I mean, almost everybody who we train talk about how this changed their lives. Um, and I think you have to change the clinician's lives first before you can, you can start to change the, our service users' lives. So, so it, you know, it's a big journey that people go on. It's beautiful to watch that. And yeah, so, so but apart from on that individual level, on the wider level, um, I, I do see a genuine openness that there are tiny pockets of resistance, but fundamentally, frontline clinicians are not all that wedded, actually, to a particular model. They're just doing what they've been told to do. Um, they're working the way that they were trained to work. A fish in water doesn't know what it looks like outside water. And so somebody in the current mainstream system doesn't know what a different system looks like because they've never been in one. So we don't really have that kind of resistance from most people. There's a few people, but there's not many ideologues out there in reality. You know, um, They may be following a particular ideology without knowing they are. You know, That's because it's the air they breathe right now. So I haven't found change all that difficult, and I, I do have a huge amount of hope in the possibilities of the future. It's really about creating that new atmosphere that people can walk into, and as soon as they do, pretty much universally, they all say, this is it, this is where we need to stay. Mm. And that's what's happening on, on, a, on a very large basis right now. Well, it's so heartening to hear that people are engaging with it so much. And Russell, again, from reading Breaking Down is Waking Up, you write about your experiences of listening carefully to your patients and being struck by how profound some of their inner wisdom was. 
And it struck me that that's probably a key tenet of what open dialogue is in allowing the service user to represent their own reality and then to work with that. So how do we ensure that we capture that patient wisdom and insight, perhaps no matter what intervention we might use? Yeah, and I think that there's two fundamental um, sort of answers to that, really. As you say, you know, in my book, after having sort of practiced years of mindfulness, being exposed to lots of sort of uh, wisdom in that teaching, I then would hear similar wisdoms coming from the, the patients I'd look after. I'd work in a secure unit where people had very acute psychotic breakdowns and actually hear things from them that made sense on a kind of spiritual level, mm. even though it might not make logical sense in the, you know, in our kind of day-to-day life, there was something profound in it. And I realized that there's something really deep that these guys are touching. It's not just kind of being healed. There's, there's more to it than that, which is what kind of provoked me to write that. I felt kind of compelled. I could not write this book. I had to, I had to speak about this. And um, yeah, that's when it kind of led me to, to think about new ways of working like Open Dialogue and other, um, other kind of similar uh, philosophies. And yeah, it, I guess there's two things. One is that realizing that uh, a breakdown can have a kernel of profoundness within it. And, you know, all of us are experiencing some existential angst somewhere. Mm. There's nobody maybe Donald Trump, I don't know, maybe there's something, but there's hardly anybody that doesn't admit that, you know, somewhere in their life. There's something in it. It's just like it says on the film of Matrix, and it's like a splinter in your mind. Mm-hmm. It's, we all have that. Everybody has that somewhere. And it's because, you know, maybe we have socialized ourselves, we've kind of culturized ourselves into a certain way of seeing the world, but maybe that's not how things really are, you know? And so there's a part of us existentially that is always wavering a little bit, um, which is actually a good thing it's a healthy thing because you know we can open up to to deeper connections with whatever this is all about and i'm profoundly agnostic in the way that i see the world i know that i don't know you know Mm. um and so that ability to open up to these other things that we're not aware of can be a good thing and they can really lead us to some wisdom and that's actually what happened historically you know in ancient times shamanic cultures and others where where people who had breakdowns were, were seen to have profound wisdoms and that's true so actually understanding that a breakdown can take you somewhere that our normal sense of logic and language doesn't always take us is is one thing uh but even if you don't buy that, you know, even if you're a positive realist and you only want to stay in this kind of material, okay, fine. But at the same time, very few people are going to deny that there is, you know, there is any uncertainty out there at all, you know. And so one of the core principles of Open Dialogue is tolerating uncertainty. So knowing that at some level, you know, uh, perhaps you don't know, and, and, and knowing therefore that, uh, I mean, at a very basic clinical level, I've never heard a voice. So who am I to tell someone who hears a voice that I know more about it than they do? Mm. So in all of these experiences, I think it's very important for clinicians. If I was an orthopedic surgeon, then yes, I could take an x-ray and say, I know more about your, your broken leg because I've seen an x-ray. I can see inside it. I know what it looks like and I can tell you what we should do. That's different. But in mental health, we, can't, we don't have such things. There's no single test that ever proves that someone has a mental illness. Mm. So we don't really know what's going on, and we don't know the experience either. The person having the experience is the real expert, and therefore, you know, some humility is fundamentally required. Humility, an embrace of some degree of uncertainty at least, is what I think allows us to to create an environment where people, that wisdom that really exists in there can come through, uh, and people's own innate way of healing can start to take place. So I think that's fundamental. Mm. Um, It doesn't mean that it doesn't involve other things and other interventions. Of course it can do. 
But at least creating that space where that can happen, I think, is really key. And it is basically about humility. I'll, I'll give you just one little uh, data point, which um, there's a survey that the um, Health Foundation did, the Mental Health Foundation did, together with the Royal College of Psychiatrists. And they, what they did is they did a survey of psychiatrists in the UK, and they tried to get people's opinions on what they thought of their psychiatrists. And it's fascinating because it's wholly dichotomous. There's one group, it broke into two almost completely polar groups. One group loved their psychiatrists and thought they were great. And the other group hated them and thought that they were just, you know, evil monsters. Um, and so they're scratching their heads looking at this data. And I was in the room at the time wondering, why is it it's so different? To me, the answer was obvious. There's one question they never really asked, which is, I bet you the ones who are respected uh, uh, and appreciated the most are the most humble. Mm-hmm. They're the ones who are more open to humility and uncertainty and knowing that at some level they don't really know the experience more than the person having it. Whereas those who are probably hated are the ones who go around pretending that they do. Mm. And that's the big difference. You know, so I think that that's the key. And that's why we try to teach people. And that's not just about a biological description. Of course it's about that. But it's also about any psychological formulation model that you've got in your head as well. Mm. You know? All of those things... Um, get between you and the patient, you and being present with whatever is their experience. Uh, and, and that's what I'm very passionate about, helping to convey to clinicians. Really, all of those models, it's not that none of them have any utility. They can do, but you need to keep them in your back pocket. Uh, if it's called upon by the person having the experience, then you can bring it forward, not before that, because it's not the truth. What the person is experiencing is the truth, because it is their experience and not yours. Well, again, you write beautifully in your book about the relationship between a person's ego and life events, and that if you tend to define yourself as very important and very separate from things, then you might be missing that social connection and compassion. And I wondered if that equally applied to psychiatrists, and the ones that engage with their patients and understand them are the ones who are thought best of, and the ones that are perhaps a bit more egotistical and remote don't get such good outcomes. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think, um, you know, we're all... I, you know, particularly as doctors, we have a, a bit of a, a experience of respect that comes from society. Um, and I think where we make a wrong turn sometimes is where we forget that there's something we have to earn with every person we see. Mm. And it's not automatically due to us just because, you know, we are doctors. Um, and I think that's really important. I think that when you get that and you, you, you appreciate that actually, that how do I earn this person's respect? And the, the way to really do it is to, uh, you know, in some respects, sort of sit beneath them and let them take it forward and show you what, what's really going on. And particularly in psychiatry, I think that's fundamental. Because they say, you know, we can't pretend. that, the, And this is a new field. Mm. We don't really understand. And also, nobody really understands consciousness. You know, some basic stuff. Very hard to describe. You need to... Our training doesn't go into you know, these wider things, but I think that it's very important to understand. And as I said, what encourages me, however, is the fact that I, I almost haven't come across colleagues, and I've trained hundreds now in mindfulness and open dialogue. Before I was training open dialogue, I used to teach psychiatrists mindfulness. So I used to run mindfulness retreats. I still do run mindfulness retreats um, for psychiatrists, bringing them into to the whole realm of mindfulness. And it's just wonderful to see how, you know, they start to open up uh, and uh, as I say, you appeal to them on the fundamental level that I know you want to help the people you work with, you know, and very few people, I haven't met any so far, will turn around and say, no, I don't. Mm. You know? So when you appeal to them on that level, actually a great deal uh, can happen and it does. Uh, and, and now I am surrounded by 
dozens of colleagues, many dozens of colleagues who are working in exactly that way. And it's just so inspiring to see mm. um, doctors, nurses, all professional backgrounds. And it's just, uh, yeah, it's just being part of this transformative process. Um, that Yeah, it's just wonderful to be around this happening now. Uh, and as I think that it can happen on, on bigger and bigger levels, really. Absolutely. And Russell, you've written much about the connection between the spirituality and mental health. And so I wondered if we could perhaps explore where you feel that psychiatry and spirituality can coexist and how that can be better for patient outcomes. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, um, an interesting side note is that the Royal College of Psychiatrists has a number of special interest groups. Uh, one of the most popular special interest group is the spirituality special interest group with about a quarter to a third of all the psychiatrists in the country subscribe to it. Mm. Um, so there is, an, there is a, a kind of a, a resonance uh, with this kind of thing with a lot of professionals too. However, the most important statistic is the fact that something like 84% of people who've had a severe mental health uh, episode in their lives describe themselves as very spiritual. And that's something like 10 times more than the rest of the general public. Why is that? You know, there's something happening here that um, that leads to you having these experiences that, that, that then connects you to something. You know, there's some sort of connection. And I guess that one of the reasons for writing the book is to help people understand, help professionals particularly to understand that actually there's a spiritual way of looking at these things that can have more meaning to people than uh, you know, traditional descriptions. Now, that doesn't validate or invalidate anything, you know. Mm. Uh, it's, of course, different for each individual. But, yeah, there is something fundamental, a kind of connection that people feel when they have this, and it's important for us not to just dismiss that and say that it doesn't exist. So I think that um, spirituality is fundamental if we're working in the world of mental health and if you just pathologize it all or sort of demarcate it as at, at best not relevant or at worst um, you know, bad for you um, is not helpful. So, uh, you know, I think that it's it's pretty much impossible to practice psychiatry without some uh, some reverence at least for the, for the spiritual and that can mean anything. You know, as I say, I'm fundamentally personally agnostic um, but people can have their own ways of understanding the world um, and it's very important to respect that and so it's important to have some respect for spiritual understandings and and that way you're getting alongside the people you're working with mm. at the same time of course these experiences can be horrific for people you know, they can be very very frightening uh, and so we can't pretend that there's no need for support at these times there can be need for support at these times but of course the support must be tailored to the individual and it must be led by what their fundamental needs are rather than trying to put people into a template mm. So that's why I think that kind of mental health services, there's a role for them. Um, I'm not anti-psychiatry saying that, you know, there's no role for this. However, if you see that role within a wider context in terms of people undergoing something that can be of meaning to them, not just a, not just a patho pathological experience, something that could be of meaning to them, be open to that. And that's how, you know, a, a professional, somebody in the mental health or mental health services can work with people symbiotically with their spiritual experience so that we're honoring that, we're respecting that, we're allowing it to unfold. Uh, but at the same time, we're trying to help them and the community around them take off the worst edges of that if that is really important, you know. So uh, when that is becoming too overwhelming, then, of course, some help might be needed. But otherwise, actually also being able to validate those experiences, so not, not being closed off to them. You know? One of the things that really captured me about Open Dialogue early on was when um, uh, one of the nurses, Mia Curti, on the original Daniel Mackler video, talked about how um, you know, I'm not a sort of reality police here. 
we must allow people to have their own understanding of reality, and that's exactly how I see it too. Uh, of course, like I say, we're not arguing against any intervention here, and of course that might be necessary sometimes. However, you know, being open to that context, being open to people's descriptions, is a way of bringing those two things together. Uh, and so that's how I think that um, that's why I think it's important for mental health services and spirituality to, to be able to work hand in hand. And as I say, uh, you know, my original um, quote about the statistics and number of psychiatrists that are very open to this shows that this is not necessarily going against the grain either. Thank you. And Russell, I guess I'm asking you to gaze into a crystal ball a little now and ask how you see the future of how we respond to people who are struggling. From talking to you, I get the distinct sense that the common theme in mindfulness and open dialogue and ACT is connection and compassion. So I wondered what your thoughts were on how we can take the opportunity to be compassionate with people and to connect with them when we do provide support in the future. Yeah, sure. I mean, I guess that, you know, my hope is that in future our systems are orientated towards this because I know that there are a lot of approaches out there that are very mindful, very compassionate. So compassion-focused therapy, for example, mm. is another example there. And there are a number of them. However, if the system goes against the grain of that, then it's only going to be little sort of spots of dust in the stream, and it won't have much impact. So my hope for the future is very much that we have a whole system that recognizes that. And what that means is that a system that puts relationships first. Mm. So the clinician who, who meets the uh, you know patient and the family, uh, the group of clinicians who they work with, need to be the same consistent people all the way through the care pathway. That is so 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 important. You know? I mean, the num- it's not the number of people. Everybody who experiences a crisis team or a home treatment team in the UK always says, and I, I can't even say the majority of people, every single person who I've ever met who've had this service always says, I'm sick of seeing a different person every day. Mm. You know? So how could we possibly have a system where relations, you know, a relational system where relating to people's experience is possible when you're seeing a different person every day? Mm. So uh, the first thing is the system needs to be one in which relationships are seen as key, um, where well, those group of clinicians you work with are the ones you stay with. That's the first thing. The second thing is that we need to have uh, a system where clinicians are trained to really be present with distress and not just try to remove it. Um, and that requires a lot of inner training because it's it, actually, as human beings, we do have a default to try to do that, to try to remove distress. You know? So it requires a lot of heavy personal work to engage in that kind of thing. Um, and so I guess that's the second component, really. One is an organizational change, and the other is actually a kind of personal therapeutic change. You think about psychotherapists. They have their own therapy regularly, uh, whereas people working in psychiatry who deal with a lot more distress don't have any of their own personal work. Um, so some real personal work going on to help people um, to be present with others' distress and not feel like their job is just to get rid of it. Actually, allow yourself to be with it and to see where it goes. And, of course, all sorts of things may result. You know, in an open dialogue type approach, it's very pragmatic, very need adapted. Nothing is, uh, you're not saying no to any particular thing. So therefore, you know, it could be medication, it could be CBT, it could be other things, could also be actually being with that person regularly for them to have the experience. And that might be enough. In fact, in most cases, that usually will be enough. Uh, and that's what I'm finding while doing open dialogue. However, you know, a system that teaches clinicians to do that and as I say it's not an impossible task by any means it's actually a task that we found to be very possible so myself Mark Hoffenbeck Val Jackson uh, Cassie Thorley were running this open dialogue course in the UK and training clinicians this way and we're just so 
in awe of the people that we've trained and seeing how they're taking to it like ducks to water um, after, you know, after a bit of a, you know, kind of a challenging period uh, through the training. We're personally challenging ourselves to, to go that extra mile in that inward journey. Uh, but yeah, so that, that would be the second component. The first thing I want to see in the future is this uh, system change to put relationships first. And the second thing is very much that kind of training change, that change in the way that um, professionals see their work um, about, you know, kind of really working on themselves as well and being able to be present with distress and uh, and finding collaborative ways through it rather than sort of top-down approaches. Well, Russell, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me and for helping me understand more about Open Dialogue and your work to trial this within the UK NHS. Yeah, nice to talk to you. Yeah, <laughs> cheers and Jason. So I just want to thank Dr. Razak and to say that if you'd like to hear more from him, he'll be appearing at the Compassionate Mental Health event being held on April 25th and 26th in South Wales in the UK. And for more information, you can visit the website compassionatementalhealth.co.uk. So thank you for listening, and until next time, take care. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.